Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is the second part of episode 20, which is all about Golden Heroes, the superheroes role-playing game that was published by Games Workshop in 1984. This podcast features all the extra bits and pieces that didn't quite fit into the first part. It's not so much a follow-up as an expansion that's listed in White Dwarf, but never actually appears, and passes into a gaming legend. It's clear that there's a subset of RPGers who are very passionate about Super's role-playing. Although the game went out of print fairly soon after it was released, there are many people who've been keeping the game alive. People like Steve Race, who's written the following review on iTunes. The Grognard Files is my favourite podcast by far. Dirk and his cohorts capture perfectly the experience of playing role-playing games in 1980s Britain and nicely counterpoint their adolescent viewpoints with their adult perspective. I'm transported back to those joyous days of seemingly never-ending summer holidays playing games with my friends. Don't be fooled though, it's not all nostalgia. If you've ever played any of the featured games, you'll be rewarded with a new perspective on the games of yore and new revelations aplenty. At the time of writing, the latest episode features Golden Heroes, a game I've played on and off for 30 years plus. I thought I knew this game inside and out, but I discovered several facts about the game's creation and the rules that I knew nothing about. All in all, it's the podcast that I must listen to as soon as it drops each month. Long may it continue. Thanks, Steve. Steve is the co-host of Squadron Chatter, an unofficial podcast for the game Squadron UK, which was Simon Burley's follow-up to Golden Heroes. He and his co-host, Kevin Rolfe, provide a deep delve into Squadron UK, but they also deal with the legacy of Golden Heroes. It's great to have Simon Burley, creator of Squadron UK, joining us again to face the Games Master screen. This time he talks more about comics, fanzines, conventions and the mechanics of his code system. There's some weird interference in places, but I put that down to my cybernetic brain interfering with my Yeti microphone. We've had correspondence from the Grog Squad about their experiences of playing Golden Heroes so we head to the snug in the Lassagari in Manchester to talk about some of the issues that have been raised. Fellow armchair adventurer and very good friend, Daily Dwarf from Twitter has written an essay about the articles and scenarios that appeared in White Dwarf to support Golden Heroes. Regular listeners will know that this podcast was originally conceived as a memoir of our formative years of gaming. We have another hoary old shaggy dog story about the worst RPG session ever. Please indulge us. I'll be back at the end to provide the usual Grog Squad parish newsletter. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Welcome to the Games Master screen. 
where I'm joined by Simon Burley. Hello, Simon. Hello. Okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my supervisor's screen because I'm a scenario supervisor here, the SS. And I'm that going... was that was deliberate, by the way. <laughs> You'll notice in Golden Heroes where my abbreviations are in there and Pete's abbreviations are in there. Mine always have double meanings. So <laughs> SS, WC for weapon class, DC for defence class are all mine. <laughs> Things like DUP, day utility phase, are all Pete's. I'm going to put this screen between us and right. I'm going to roll on a table. So I've got some uh, anecdotes from your uh, life in gaming and I'm going to mm-hmm. roll apparently at random uh, on the table and uh, find a subject. So here goes, here we go. I'm going to roll first. Okay, that's a, that's a 13. Oh, unlucky for some. Uh, that's Imagine 21. <laughs> Is that a superhero issue? <laughs> yeah, that's a superhero issue, yeah. That's... Oh, yeah, wonderful. Um, right, at the time that we were trying to get Golden Heroes out there, um, about that time was being published, I realised that I thought there were lots and lots of superhero games out there. It's nothing like compared to today. Thousands of the buggers today. But there were lots out there. There was... Champions, Marvel Superheroes, Golden Heroes, Superworld, uh, Villains and Vigilantes, loads of them. And I thought, because Superheroes is looked down on by the D&D hobby, I know it's remarkable, everyone looks down on D&D, but the D&D players look down on the Superhero players. I thought the only chance we have of getting the hobby off the ground, really, is if we all work together. So I put together a small team of people who played the different games. I wrote a, started a fanzine called Superhero UK, which included superhero content and every issue had a scenario but the scenario had the stats for the same characters in four or five different game systems and we got a couple of those articles published in um, in white dwarf you know i pitched it to imagine which was a tsr house magazine and they agreed because they wanted to do a push for when marvel superheroes came out so they when they got their advanced copies of marvel superheroes they actually sent one to us we got one of the first copies of marvel superheroes in the country and we we got a chance to you know look at it before everyone else it was fun i wrote a multi-system scenario because i wrote a multi-system scenario i actually gave the job of writing the introduction to superheroes to somebody else in the team it was going to be published and then the ruling came down from tsr games company said that if we were going to use marvel superheroes as a rule system um had to use the marvel characters because that was the whole point of them producing marvel superheroes that they've got the marvel character and then the editors tried to rewrite my scenario quickly to put marvel characters in and the ruling came down from marvel or it might have been the other way around actually but the other company that um if you were using marvel characters you couldn't use any other game system because they didn't want to see marvel characters in any game system except for the official one so my scenario was squelched i was actually stomped on by tsr and marvel simultaneously the editor put together a scenario overnight where a clever guy he actually used the super scroll which means that he could take the example characters in the rules use their stats for the bad guy so we didn't have much work to do and so the issue was produced i basically had been the driving force behind it but not one word of what i'd written appeared in the magazine but i did get paid for the scenario you know they still paid me so that's fine and and Around this time, you, the the fanzine you were producing, it, it, did you say you had lots of people involved in uh, producing that? I was the editor, but 
I had a team of four or five people who I didn't meet. It was only, uh, you know, correspondence. But when I'd written a scenario, I would send them a copy and then they would send me back the stats for the characters in Champions, in Superworld. I think uh, we did do Marvel Superheroes. It was three or four systems. And how long did that run for? I ran it for maybe half a dozen issues and I passed it over to one of the other contributors because that's something I do a lot. I start things and then I pass them over because I lose interest. And he took it and ran it for maybe 20 issues. And then he turned it into a professional magazine, which was called Fantasia, which was a, a magazine to about comics and about movies. But it turned into a full-time movie magazine. But in the first first few issues of that, in between the movie reviews, it had some articles about um, super, you know, role-playing games generally, including superhero ones. There was an interview with me in the first issue. Uh, <laughs> So he took it professional. Well, I really like that um, Imagine 21 issue. It's one of my favourites, so uh, it's interesting to know that you were behind it, even though uh, you don't get credited for it. I've got the money, that's all that matters really. <laughs> OK, let's roll again. OK, that's uh, that's five, and that's uh, comics. So you, you mentioned last time um, some of your, uh, your, your interest in comics. So... I suppose the question is, why superheroes? What, what is it with uh, Simon Burley and superheroes? I wore glasses all the way through my life, and there was this guy wearing glasses who was in these marvellous poses with these huge eye beams coming out of his eyes, zapping people. And, so, and Peter Parker wore glasses in the first issue, and Clark Kent wore glasses. So I suppose that was at the basis of it. I was also an absolute fan, without realising it, of the comics code because the good guys had to be seen to win. There was no no two ways about it. Because of the comics code, the writers of American comics, with their liberal viewpoints, they tried to subvert it. So you got lots of what they call subversive literature, where it works on two levels. They, on the surface of it, were the bright, multicolored comics like DC used to produce in the 40s and 50s, but with a clever writing of subversive undertone at the time that I was reading them. I mean... I don't. Have you ever read any of the uh, X Men when they were written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by John Byrne? No, I haven't. I mean, no. I, I, if you I ever was... have a chance to read a comic, those are the ones to read. It's what the X Men of today, the films are based on. They're genius. Also, at that time, there was uh, a writer called David Michelini who doesn't get enough credit, and he was writing with his inker at the time. Not the guy that drew the pencils, but the guy that did the ink over the top, um, writing a marvelous series of Iron Man, which is what the, the films are currently based on. Somebody called Frank Miller started taking over Daredevil and took the most unsuccessful Marvel title into the most successful by doing dark and gritty superhero stuff. So that period of time, late 70s, early 80s, there was a lot of really high quality comic literature coming out that was followed the comics code, but also subverted it, which which appeals to a teenager. Do you think it's difficult um, in a post-ironic world, uh, sorry, I suppose in a post-Watchman world, to deal with superheroes? Because that, that, that's what I found difficult, um, pitching the idea of costumed superheroes to my uh, group. Because there needs to be that sense of, uh, I don't know, authenticity and realism uh, following uh, Watchmen. Alan Moore himself bemoans what Watchmen has done to the comics industry. It's the Americans, they, they took what was basically a satire and thought it was a template for success. And they got rid of the comics code, which means that they had nothing to rebel against and could do whatever they want. And when you let people do whatever they want, they do unpleasant things. 
but they lost their way. I mean, the comics code is heavily decried everywhere as a really bad, repressive piece of legislation. And I've had people say, if you read it, you'll see why. And I've, I've read it and I don't see anything wrong with it. All it is, is it's like the cinema rating system or a video game rating system. It just makes sure that the content that's being delivered is appropriate for the people that are reading it. Because it was repressive, they tried to fight against it. And you got this wonderful contrast. And yes, to go back to your point, superheroes is a difficult thing to sell because of the bright costumes. In Golden Heroes, our game, then the big thing was rationalisation of the characters. You had to make the characters work. It made you think about that. And that's what you need to do. There has to be, There's an absolute reason why that guy dresses up as a bat and goes around. There's an absolute reason why the X-Men are out there and an absolute reason why they wear those uniforms. You have to have a reason for doing it. People who say the word, I hate the word spandex. Nobody puts on spandex and goes out and fights crime in a brightly coloured costume. They get shot, they get killed. Every single one of those people in the comics has a reason and a rationale for being there. Well, nowadays it shouldn't be a hard sell because of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You look at every single one of those characters, every single one has got a reason for what they're wearing and what they're doing. Iron Man, he was trapped. He was His only way out was to build himself a machine to fight his way out. And he put the gold and, uh, the red and gold in it because he likes his, likes his cars. But he developed it as a, as a life-saving device. Captain America was a symbol for the Americans. And he just happened to keep the uniform on when he went on a mission. Now, every, everyone there has a, a reason for why they're dressed and the way they look. And that's what you need to sell people. You need to sell it on the veracity. But as I said before, the world in general looks down on role players. Role players look down on superhero role players. Always have. We're, we're like at the bottom of the heap. But it, I think it's time for a resurgence, isn't it? Because as you mentioned, with uh, the cinematic growth of superheroes, um, what we found when we played it recently, that there's ways there's ways into the game now isn't there so people find it more palatable and have more ideas of what to do with the characters yeah you, i mean you if you um you don't think about super role-playing traditional super role-playing game like golden heroes like squadron uk is you make characters the referee uses the same rules to make some villains you stick them on the table you have a fight now it's not much of a role-playing game but you actually find because the fights tend to go on a bit but you find role-playing comes out during the battles um did you find that when you were playing it recently yes yes definitely yeah you know so you can role-play within the battles even though the battles are rather long as rpgs go so you can, there's not much, you know, super planning. You can actually have um, the Avengers film without a lot of thought. You need an excuse for a fight at the beginning. You need an excuse for the fight at the end. And you need a little bit of story in between. And people will, people will love it. So it's easy to play. And you're quite right earlier on when you talked about the character generation system for Golden Heroes. I think that is probably a good bridging thing. If you can get people to sit, if you get people to sit down with mutants and masterminds or champions and you say we're going to play a super role playing game what kind of superhero do you want to play then they'll say i don't want to play a super role playing game if you sit down with golden heroes or squadron uk and you say you're going to roll some dice now you're going to start to make superheroes see how you feel about it they'll suddenly get engaged yes. so i think i think that's the way to go and if you do it together as well you can see yeah. that people build on each other's origin story so they look for reasons why they're a team Right, I'm going to uh, roll on the table again for the next one. Okay. Oh, I have uh, rolled two fours, that's a double, so I'm going to roll again. That's two sixes, oh, that's no. a double, I'm going to roll again. 
And that's another double. It must be uh, the Code of Games. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I uh, I play Golden Heroes, and then years later I bring it back to Squadron UK, and they're good games, and you have your figures on your maps, and you play big battles, like I just mentioned. But the big battles take the ch- a big chunk out of your evening's play, and there's not much role-playing. If you notice, you watch television, especially the television, pro, you know, the super on television these days, especially the DC ones, the, the good television series, they have lots of interaction between the characters. Normally not in costume, because the costumes cost money, and then they have a fight halfway through, and a fight at the end, and the fights last about a minute, and that's it, because that's all they can afford. And yet they have a, an ongoing storyline that lasts for 13 to 26 episodes per season. And then you look at comics and you actually read when you find when you're reading the comics, the fights don't go on that long. The only places the fights go on for a long time are in the big budget films. Uh, One of the conventions I was travelling to was Compulsion in Scotland. I found out that it's actually cheaper to fly to Edinburgh than it is to go to Edinburgh on the train. Getting to Edinburgh on the train takes hours and hours and flying doesn't take anything like as long. But... As soon as you factored in your maps and your figures boxes and all the paraphernalia you have to take to play a superhero game, you've got extra baggage and the flight is more expensive. So what I needed was I needed a lightweight game that would fit in an overnight bag and where the superhero battles didn't last ages, you had more time to do the role-playing and storylines like you got on telly. So I wrote something called The Comics Code, which is a small lightweight trade paperback, which just uses 2D6, has a totally new approach to it, uh, more storytelling. It works incredibly well. I don't read other people's games. I occasionally play games at conventions. So The Comics Code is more like Fate and less like Savage Worlds, if that makes sense to people. And I've played uh, your manga version of this with you at uh, UK Games Expo. Yeah. And it is good at creating story on the hoof. I wonder yeah. if it would be worth you just going through some of the mechanics that are involved in that. Yeah. Okay, so the basic mechanic in the comics code is you roll 2d6. You don't add the results which everyone seems to want to do automatically, you multiply the results. So you get a range of results that goes from 1 up to 36. So you've got a 1 to 36 range out of just two dice, which gives a wacky uh, range of outcomes. I call it cinematic. Some people call it goofiness, but it gives you a very wide range. But the dice also do a couple of other things. The lowest of the two dice... um, is the amount of damage you do if you succeed. I really wanted it to be the highest of the two dice because I wanted the fights to be over really quickly. But in playtests, all the players insisted that we took the lowest of the two dice so the battles could go on just that little bit longer. But if you roll a double, uh, double one, you've automatically failed. Double six, you've automatically succeeded. Any other double, there's a range of options you can choose from. It goes from purely tactical stuff, like you can save the chance to re-roll a die for the future, uh, which you want to do, because in the last battle, you know I'm going to throw a big horrible monster against you. And if you roll low, you want to re-roll the dice to get a higher roll. If I roll high, you want to make me re-roll the dice to get a lower roll. So you, you can save some re-rolls. There's combat options, like you can swap an opponent with uh, swap an opponent with one of your teammates, or you can do some um, collateral damage. In addition to hitting the opponent, you're doing some extra bits of damage. Or, and these are the ones I love 
some referees are dubious about. You can affect the progress of the game. You can change the emotional state of one of the referee's characters. You can say, that guy's scared, he's going to run away. That guy's fallen in love with her, he's not going to want to hurt her. You can introduce a new plot element, so you can have the cavalry coming riding over the hill if you want to, or you can change the plot direction and you can say they weren't really looking for an alien artefact, they were mining for gold or something like that. And so that gives the the players not total control over the storyline in in most story games where you're collaboratively creating the story. It gives you a one in nine chance of directly affecting the story, but it's not all the time. There's also other features built into the code books, which are each individual character gets a personal plot line, which if they resolve it, they get a, um, a bonus point. So if, you, if you've got a plot line that you've, your mother's missing and you're looking for her, the first time you meet a female NPC, if somebody says, hang on, that person looks like you, is that your lost mum, you get a bonus point for doing that. So it drives the story. And, and there's a number of different genres, isn't there, that you've written using oh, yeah. the... It, so what's that there's a steampunk one isn't there yeah I, I I was running the comics code at a convention and a player turned to me and said you haven't written a superhero game there he said you've written a uh, generic game or you because in um, the comics code you've got three attributes attack defence and general how you attack people martial arts how you defend from being attacked my star spangled shield general I'm a you know World War Two hero, and it's as simple as that. And he said you could do attack with uh, a broadsword, uh, defend with a shield. Uh, I'm a warrior. It'll work for D and D. It'll work for anything. It do- it wasn't quite as straightforward as that, but I realised it could be adapted for different genres. So I adapted it for science fiction, worked incredibly well. Then I adapted it for steampunk, worked incredibly well. And I've adapted it for anime, uh, where it works okay, but it squeaks a bit at the higher levels. Where you merge all your zoids together to make a megazoid, then you're rolling quite a few more dice than I prefer. But you you only do that for a round or two at the end of the game, just to win. And then I've recently done it for fantasy. Finally, I had to do the fantasy one, which worked out far, far better than I was expecting. Um, so yeah, I think I've got five genres. They're all little paperback books. You know, they're all throw it in your bag, two d six. Everything you need written on the character sheet. Really easy to play, but a lot of fun. All available on drive through. Most of them available on um, on Amazon as well. I don't think uh, we got to the point where we were rolling lots of dice uh, when we played because I think uh, a banana shaped uh, spacecraft um, took us away. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it was good fun. It was yeah. a bit a bit crazy, but good fun. Yeah, well, I, I, you've got to be careful when you're playing a game with the creator, whether you're enjoying what the creator's doing or whether you're enjoying the game. But I do tend to run the goofy end of things. If somebody says to me, yes, uh, a meteor comes out of the sky and splashes in the water and a giant tripod comes out of it and strides towards the beach, which I've had done to me, I, I go with it. Whereas other referees might say, tone it down a bit. Let's roll again. Um, okay, that's a, a 56, and that's conventions. So <laughs> you, you're well known on the UK uh, convention circuit, and you've actually produced a book about um, UK conventions. Yeah. So how did that hobby start? How did that um, well, obsession in, start? As I say, in the 1980s, we went to a few conventions to play um, Golden Heroes and get it out there. Um, but then that was it. That We just all left university and split up. 
and then I didn't do it anymore. But um, when I met my wife, I'd already written squad, the first version of Squadron UK, but I wasn't playing it very much because I didn't have a home group. She suggested, she said, well, there's these games conventions, why don't you go to them? And I went off to this little thing called Games Expo, which was in a hotel in Birmingham at the time, and thoroughly enjoyed it, and I started going to more and more of them to demonstrate my games and try and sell my games. It becomes kind of addictive. So I went to more and more and more, and I realised that the word games convention covers a multitude of sins because you can go to some games conventions and they are massive and they're really well organised and you can go some and they're in a small and they're in Nissan Hut and some of them if you want to play your own weird little games people will sign up and play happily others people don't want to play your games they want to play the, the big ones they want to play D&D 5th edition or, or stuff like that I thought it'd be nice if people had a kind of hint at how different they are and how broad the scene is so i i just wrote for a year i wrote a little diary which i published in two volumes of every convention i went to how much it cost me and what that convention was like to try and give some people a viewpoint of you know what the difference is between games expo and concrete cow now, I've had a mixed experience in conventions and back in the day I wasn't a big convention goer but since getting back into the hobby I've started going to them. What what are your top tips for uh, a convention? What, what things should I uh, look out for? Most important thing is before you go, before you go, you have a look at the website and you try and ride between, read between the lines and try and work out what sort of convention it is uh, and if it's going to suit you or not. Drop me an email and I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> go to my blog where I report on conventions. But look at the website, read the kind of interactions that are going on and see if you think it's going to be a convention that suits you. See if it's a local convention for local people where the local referees are going to get people playing their games. And if you want to play in those games, that's fine. Uh, see if it's a big convention like Expo with a well-organised RPG track. Yeah, the main thing is read the website and be a bit leery if they conduct all their planning and preparation on Facebook because they tend to be the ones that don't have quite as strong an idea of how to organise themselves. People think Facebook is a good way to post games and get people to book up for games and it doesn't work. Well, thanks for those tips and thanks for being on uh, the Grognard file, Simon. Thanks for sharing sure, sure your wisdom. It's been great. It's great having you. Thanks, Simon. Okay. See you. See you. Postbag. Welcome to the postbag. We're in one of our favourite places on planet Earth, the Snug at the Las Agare, here in Manchester, the greatest city in the United Kingdom. I'm joined by Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Uh, we're drinking fine ales on an afternoon in May. As we have now reached a significant age yeah. of 50. Yeah. Cheers, Blythe. Let's Cheers. just give him a chink. Cheers, Dirk. Right. Yeah, so at the end of this month, uh, we're all 50. Me, you, and Kylie. Yeah. Uh, but she, she, didn't, she not turned up. Yeah, she's not made it. Despite so. the invites and letters. Can't ignore us forever. No. <laughs> well, apparently she couldn't come this afternoon. She's uh, changing an oil sump on her Austin <laughs> Allegro. Uh, that's coming, so uh, yeah, she can't come there. So. It is to Kylie as well. It is to Kylie. So, now, 
uh, uh, Golden Heroes. We've had a, a great uh, response, great reception uh, from the uh, first part of this. So we thought we'd have a delve into the post bag and have a look at yeah. uh, some of the comments that people have made, some of the co uh, correspondence that we've received. And it's, it's one of those games, I think, uh, Golden Heroes, because it has a short shelf life. It's got its fans, and its fans are quite vociferous and yes. supportive of it. Yeah. Um, so, first uh, the uh, post bag, let me just have a look here. It's uh, going to be Rog Core. So, I'm now going to cut away to uh, me doing my best Ian McKellen impression. <laughs> I agree with the power thing. Back then, it did seem that to start powerful was somehow cheating, like rolling up a high-level D&D character and starting with that. We were conditioned to start as a weedy farm boy and usually die as a weedy farm boy, but dream of one day achieving power. Now it's perhaps more about the gameplay, possible as a result of your character being capable rather than a slogging journey of achievement. Plus, I suppose we're less likely to abuse those powers now. That's a good point, though, isn't it? So, in a superpower yeah. game, you're starting off with powers. It's not like you're rewarded with them through experience or mm. developing your character. Yeah. How does that change things? Well, yeah, it's, it's a good point. And I think certainly back in the day when we got Golden Heroes, that was the way we played. That was the way everyone played. There was that sense of character progression, wasn't there? I don't think that's quite true nowadays. No, no. I think, you know, people play it a little bit more like, you know, one shots and what have you. But um, certainly then, character progression was an issue. Well, even now, I mean, we've, uh, with the recent campaign we've done of um, Storm yeah, King's yeah, Thunder. Yeah, character is nice, isn't it? It's, 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 the, first, it's, it's the first time, isn't it, since returning to role-playing yeah. that we've gone from a first-level character yes. up until yeah, uh, eighth-level. Yeah. And, uh, you, yeah. know, we've, we, you know, we're remembering mm. all the times when we weren't powerful and having yeah. to hide behind trees and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And part of the reward of um, the game, or the, the game element, yes. is giving you those uh, abilities as you progress through the yeah. story. Yeah, you're right. It is a problem with a superhero game. You, you by um, by definition, you're super powered, aren't you? Yeah. But, and I think it's, I think it's fair to say that was a problem back in the day. But I think Rogers articulated it for us. I don't think I was quite aware that that was a problem. But when I had the game, I could see these set pieces. Yeah big set pieces but the the whole the rest of what I would normally consider role playing seemed absent. Yeah, well when you when you described it last time, so when we were talking about it in the last time you said about um, the idea of downtime, that what do you do on your day off? Yeah, on your day off and how do you how do you progress a character? You, it's very it's very easy to see super roll a superhero character and see them flying around punching supervillains in the jaw. That's all very it's all the other stuff, isn't it? And how you develop a character, so I suppose, I suppose, the character development isn't perhaps gaining powers, but it's developing as a character in a world, isn't it? Yeah. Learning to use your powers, learning to come to terms but, with them, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that's true because if you think in um, in, in D and D, you know, if you mm. put our characters, they've got powers, haven't they? They've got superpowers. Yeah. I've got a, yeah, yeah. a, a sorcerer who's got a spell. Yeah. It's, it's only in the context of the world that he lives in mm. that he doesn't feel quite as powerful 
as say Doctor Strange. Yeah. Um, Doctor Strange is powerful because he's in our real world. In a real world, no one else can do that. No one. Else you, can. you can in D and D, you can meet a sorcerer who's more powerful than you. Yeah. So yeah, doesn't feel. But it's, it is difficult, isn't it? Because character progression, generally, is is gamed, isn't it? So it's part of a game. So character progression means acquiring new powers, acquiring abilities. Even if it's not powers and abilities, even if it's not getting better at something, it, it's like I don't know, rank or something. When we played Star Trek, you get. You can yeah. go up a rank, can't you? So yeah. if there's a game element to it. Whereas I suppose if your character development is just a more narrative element, it perhaps doesn't feel as satisfying. Yeah. So you know, you, you roll, you roll, you roll characters like Doctor Strange. Yeah. For example, he's got magic and he can do this and he can do that. And you start off playing that character, coming to terms with the powers, fitting into the world, getting the world to accept them as a superhero. That they are elements of character progression, but they're not. Game that they're not statistical yeah. or mechanical or mathematical things that you can go. Ah, I used to have a grade one. I don't know. Control my. I used to have problems controlling my abilities when I started out, but now I'm in control. Yeah, and I've got a better chance of using them. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, there's well, a think, difference I, in I that. I think sense. Uh, Golden Heroes does offer something like that. The day utility phase in some of the yes. awards you yeah. get that way in uh, Golden Heroes does does offer some of that, offer some of that, uh, some of those uh, benefits. But you're right. I, I think something you just said that most if you go to the source material, most of uh, the narrative elements of superheroes are about you know your place in the world. Yeah. So, how what do, do you use your powers for? What do you use it for? What temptation to use them for your own benefit? The risks of using them for good. You know. Yeah. The risks of going into a, doing doing using them for good rather than sitting back and not doing anything. Yeah. Those kind of things, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. So we'd agree with Roger. Yeah. And we've not really resolved the problem. No, no. There you go. And that, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I've done a good job there. But I, I do think that that the satisfying element. So let's not move away. Like so, this is the reason why I, I, I put it a bit crudely in saying, "Can it be played straight?" What I really meant is, can it be anything other than just a slug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then flying around, punching people. But does it need to be? No, if, if it doesn't. And, and when we played it, we had a lot of fun playing it. Not. Playing it straight, you know, yeah. and it was yeah, we were super it, comic it, it, book superheroes. He doesn't have to be like that, and and I suppose you don't. We have a, a different view on it now because because we're older and we get, you know, we're not gaming two, three, four times a week like we were when we were fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, um, character progression it is important, and I, I want I want to play games that allow my character to progress, but equally, I'm happy to play one shots, and maybe Golden Heroes is perfect for the one shot. You yeah. know, it's perfect for that. Or, or to have a superhero that does a series of one shots that you just dig out your superhero and when he's, off on a, he's off on another mission and there's no character progression because it's, yes, his character progression is satisfying, but it's not the be all and end all. No. You know, and maybe Golden Heroes or superhero games are games that you play now and again and you yeah. don't worry about that. Yeah. Because I think it, it is difficult. Because it's you know you're not super powered and then 
after 12 months playing a superhero you're more super powered than you were before yeah. it just yeah. doesn't work like that does it yeah okay next up is um, Graham Kinnisberg oh it's not about it's not about Lord of the Rings and Moorcock is it it's not talking of Moorcock no no I don't well I don't think we're a long standing dispute with Graham about this I don't, <laughs> I don't want to know if it's about that I don't want to know well I don't think we're scheduled for a debate about that until November is next ah uh, right okay yeah. I think you just need to let it lie draw yeah. a line under it we have to agree to differ <laughs> yeah Moorcock is better though isn't Moorcock, it? Moorcock is better he is better yeah. he's better talking's rubbish listening to part one of the Golden Heroes episode I was quite surprised to hear Simon Burley revealed that the rule set could have possibly been the official one for the Marvel superhero game how different that would have been for me, the unique charm of Golden Heroes, perhaps not in the rules themselves, but in the supporting scenarios and articles in White Dwarf, and in the pages of the Superhero UK, was the encouragement given to the Gamesmaster to run a campaign in the spirit of classic X-Men, etc., but in a campaign set firmly in the UK. See, that, that, that is true, isn't it? So when I've mm. looked at, particularly when the Squadron UK stuff that's been brought out subsequently by um, Simon Burley, it is very parochial. It is very UK-focused. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of its charm. And mm. the fanzines, so uh, Graham provided um, fanzines at uh, Superhero UK, and I put some of them on the site, grognardfiles.com, and people to look at and that very much encourages that yeah. view of it's set in the UK it's set in um, English and British uh, cities Scottish cities uh, around, the, around the country and it's very much got that UK feel yeah and it make, that makes it interesting doesn't it because back in the day almost every game had a setting that wasn't the real world so even Cthulhu set in the 20s you know you got the Cthulhu now didn't you later on but yeah. Cthulhu set in the 20s obviously it is a real world in the 20s but even fact in 1920s makes it feel slightly unreal it's historic and I remember playing Gangbusters uh, TSR's game Gangbusters yeah. had a place called Lakefront City which was Chicago yeah, but yeah. they didn't call it Chicago they called it Lakefront City yeah, yeah. but it was Chicago and Golden Heroes had that thing of playing in the real world so you could have set it in the Manchester Arndale yeah, yeah. superheroes in the Manchester Arndale which was just up the road from us having yeah. a superhero fight yeah, yeah. That, that's that's it's kind of it's not really innovative but it's an interesting aspect of the game yeah it? and to, to be honest though that's not apparent in the rules so you get the rules no it's not it, no it's it, just it, the it scenarios feels, isn't it that yeah, bring yeah. that to, to it, I think that's just all the kind of uh, stuff around it, the yes. hinterland around it yes. gives that, doesn't it? Gives that yeah. kind of approach. Yeah. But it, when uh, we played it, so we played uh, we played um, the uh, Queen Victoria and the Holy Grail. I did do a pre scene um, set around the Great Train Robbery, and it is good to put superheroes at the site of great historical events. Yes, yeah, and. Because it, it's that thing, isn't it? If you set it in the real world, you've got something to fall back on. Yeah. You've got something that you can 
it, it's identifiable. You don't have to fill in the gaps in the same no, way. No, no, it's like the beat the fight at the end in the post office tower. You, you yeah. know what the post office tower looks like. You can't yeah. imagine it, can't you? I know what it looks like, so, yeah. <laughs> Although it did uh, prompt everybody to get the phones out and look up uh, the scene of the goodies with uh, Kitten <laughs> knocking, <laughs> knocking, knocking yeah. the uh, yeah. the post office. And everyone was a bit disappointed that it wasn't a giant cat you were fighting. Yeah, and it was obviously a, disappointed. a white kitten, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, but, um, a dragon. The next one is from Kevin Ross. I've been running Golden Heroes and Squadron UK at conventions for the last six years. I've run every scenario written, including the Lancelot caper. I run each one as straight as possible. Some do descend into farce. But the bulk doesn't. It's a very enjoyable game. So yeah, this is a this is an interesting story. This this is a, a story that is in the background of uh, Golden Heroes because it had a short shelf life. And as we said last time, there was a number of uh, products or a number of supplements that were lined up to be released, and they never saw the light of day. Yeah. And the Lancelot caper is one of them, and I wasn't aware of it until we produced the podcast. And people said, "What about the Lancelot caper? Yeah. This mythical." scenario that was mentioned briefly in White Dwarf but never appeared and it, it was tracked down by uh, Kevin and it features apparently the scenario is well before I tell you the scenario okay um, what do you, why do you think why do you think that the uh, role playing games do have this facility this capacity to create Myths, so you know stuff that doesn't appear, mm. or yeah. stuff that's hard to get hold of, or that kind of thing. Well, I, I think the thing is, these things have a life of their own, almost, don't they? So, finding a scenario that's obsolete, or a game that's obsolete or disappeared, there's always that thing of almost like reanimating it, because what you would do is. Not everyone would do this, but some people are just collectors. It's like any hobby, you've always got the collector, haven't you? You just collect stuff for the sake of having it. But finding something that's obsolete or vanished and playing it again, either playing it again or playing it for the first time, there's a certain magic to that, isn't there? Because you're kind of reanimating something, making it live a little bit. Because all games and scenarios and supplements, possibly all games, but particularly role-playing games, they're only half alive when they're printed. They become, only come fully alive when you play them, don't they? Yeah. So yeah. the idea of finding a scenario that was never published, the magic would be, we're going to play this. We're yeah. going to see how this will play out and how it works and whether it is rubbish and that's why it was never published or whether it's brilliant and it's a lost kind of gem. And that's the thing, isn't it, with yeah. with gaming? Finding finding a game, um, even, even not in a role-playing game, even in a board game or card game, Finding a game that no one's played for a long, long time or was never really published or never popular. The idea of playing it makes it alive, doesn't it? Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. these things, they're just lying boxes, don't they? Yeah. Unplayed. Isn't, isn't it part of the appeal of us uh, going back to some of these old classics like we have done mm. over the last few years? It's part of that, isn't it, to revive and uh, reanimate something? Yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. And playing Golden Heroes is a classic example of that because yeah. when we played it, we we didn't we, we didn't really play it and we didn't quite know what to do with it 
and recently we played it and we thought it was fantastic. So yeah. Again, it's that breathing life into something. It's reawakening something uh, in the game, but also in yourself, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, more, it's about... Your, it's almost... It risk of sounding pretentious. They're like kind of a mirror that you're holding to yourself. So we enjoyed Golden Heroes because we're different than we were when we were 14, believe it or not. So th there's that sense as well, isn't there? We enjoyed it because we were different. The people we were around were different as well. The people we were playing it with were different people to the people we played it with a long time ago. Yeah. So there's that element to it, isn't there? That it kind of become, and that's, that's why I think things that are out of print, things that are lost, things that are obscure, have a certain appeal because that's that idea of finding something and bringing it back to life. Yeah. And also bringing something about yourself back to life as well in there as well. Yeah, it's yeah. a three-part thing, isn't it? There's the game, yeah. there's the game as it's played, and then there's what the people playing it bring to it. And that's probably more true of a role-playing game than any game, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, a role-playing game, because it has less constraints. Yeah. You know? so, so the Lancelot caper, the premise of the Lancelot caper is that there is a meeting of the EEC, do you remember that? The what? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think I do. Yeah, the European Economic Commission, was it? Or community? Commu I think it was a community. community. I think it was community, EEC. but I, I could be wrong. EEC. Yeah. Um, yeah. A meeting, and it's, they're having a meeting about monetary unionism. <laughs> okay. Just, just stay with me. Right? Yeah, oh, no, I'm... I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. And it's uh, there's a BBC report, and um, it's been interrupted because the uh, supervillains have taken control and taken all the great and the good that are in the room, having this discussion about monetary mm, union. Yeah, and that that's the premise. That's that's, that's happened, just, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that, that's happened with Brexit. That's what happened, isn't it? <laughs> Draco Smog coming in. Boris Johnson, supervillains, supervillains. Well, if you, in, if you look at uh, Thanos in Infinity War, yeah. he's purple with a, <laughs> with a bit of yellow. Yeah. And he thinks that there's too many people from coming from other places taking over the world's resources. So just get rid of them. Yeah. It's Nigel Farage. Thanos. Thanos you know, and Farage. Nigel Farage, yeah. yeah. Looking for the balance. <laughs> Well, you've sold, you've sold the Lancelot caper to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's real life. It was mentioned in White Dwarf in an article by Pete Tamlin. So let's go over to the Daily Dwarf, who's going to look at Golden Heroes coverage in White Dwarf. Okay. White Dwarf! No more heroes anymore. Golden or otherwise. Actually, I have to fess up from the outset. My knowledge of superheroes comics is pretty limited. As I've said on a previous podcast, I grew up reading the British comics 2000 AD and crazy. So my exposure to superheroes was mainly limited to Zenith and Birdman and Chicken. Now there's a team up. Of course, I was aware of various American superheroes. I remember seeing a few episodes of the 1960s Batman TV show and I enjoyed the first two Christopher Reeve Superman films and I must have absorbed a certain knowledge of other superheroes through a kind of cultural osmosis. 
But it wasn't until I went to university that I discovered American comics. I read Watchmen, but then who didn't? And some of the more famous Batman books, like The Dark Knight Returns, The Killing Joke and Arkham Asylum, but very little from Marvel. The only comic of theirs I really remember reading from that time was another one from Frank Miller, Electra Assassin. But that sticks in my mind mainly down to the Bill Sienkiewicz superlative artwork. Given all this superhero RPGs were not really on my radar and I've never played any of them back in the day. All this is a roundabout way of saying that the following discussion is very much from an outsider's perspective. Anyway, enough of this waffle. What about superhero RPGs in White Dwarf? Well, they first made an impact back in issue 39. That issue saw a revamp of the magazine. A bold new logo for the cover, the launch of Critical Mass book review, and four extra pages. And I think indicative of this fresh new direction was the inclusion of a scenario for a superhero RPG, Slayground, for the game Champions, written by Marcus L. Rowland. This was a relatively straightforward, free-form adventure with a team of PCs having to foil a team of bank robbers looking to steal platinum worth three million pounds. The villains themselves were a bit uninspiring, but the setting was one where the GM could have a lot of fun. The team had to combat the robbers in a fun fair complete with lots of innocent bystanders to make the job of the PCs that much more difficult. Indulging in wanton destruction wasn't really an option. As with many Marcus Rowland scenarios over the years, this one included some playful cultural references and had a nice line in deadpan humour. Superhero groupies could be treated as convenient projectiles for the supervillains. All in all, an auspicious start for caped crusaders in the pages of White Dwarf. All that excitement and innovation was obviously too much for the magazine, however. It would be a good while before the superheroes reappeared in White Dwarf. I imagine the three old guys, D&D, Traveller and RuneQuest, chased that young upstart champions off the lawn, grumbling about the lack of respect that these newfangled games showed to the old-timers. So it was back to business as usual for the next couple of years, albeit with a grudging acceptance of that young whippersnapper Call of Cthulhu being allowed into the magazine every now and again. Everything changed though with the arrival of Golden Heroes, a brand new RPG about superheroes from Games Workshop. And seeing as it was a Games Workshop product, it received good coverage in White Dwarf. Indeed, a mere two issues after it was reviewed in Open Box, 10 out of 10 from Marcus Rowland, stat fans, Golden Heroes was given its very own department, Heroes and Villains. Five columns were published in all, every other issue from 64 to 72. Each was written by the game's authors, Simon Burley and Peter Haynes, and covered a variety of topics, including mega-villains, additional powers, 
handling lone superheroes, more supervillains, like monsters in fantasy RPGs, presumably you can never have enough, and super scientists. Where did they get all these wonderful toys? There was nothing too groundbreaking here. Although, I like the idea in the discussions about lone superheroes of split-screening, multiple simultaneous confrontations, a concept with the potential to make the in-game action pretty cinematic, while at the same time not giving the games master a headache of running them. On rereading these columns again, I got the impression that they were having to tread very carefully when referencing Marvel and DC heroes and villains as examples to illustrate their ideas. For example, the idea of a web-slinging power. Even I knew who they were talking about there, but the man himself wasn't named. I suppose Games Workshop didn't want to tangle with that fearsome villain, Corporate Lawyer Man. More meteor topics were tackled in long-form articles for Golden Heroes, mainly from the pens of Phil Masters and Pete Tamlin. First out of the gate was The Good, The Bad and Downright Odd by Phil Masters in issue 65. This was an interesting survey on the use of NPCs in superhero RPGs and hinted at some novel approaches such as blurring the methods and motivations of the villains with those of the heroes. Even if they tried to achieve their aims by different means, this could lead to some difficult moral choices having to be made by the players. Thought-provoking stuff. Unfortunately, the article was marred by a background image that badly clashed with the text, making reading it an exercise in eye strain. Presumably the layout editor was carted off to Arkham Asylum shortly afterwards. Next up in issue 69 was Rationale Behaviour by Pete Tamlin. This article contained some tantalising concepts well worth exploring, but I'm not sure it really delivered on its promise. In it, Pete Tamlin explored the campaign ratings mechanic from Golden Heroes, and suggested that it could have a wider applicability in many other RPGs, where the conflict arises between a character's abilities and those of the player. He highlighted a number of areas where this could occur, like D&D alignment, character versus player intelligence, social interaction, and suggested that the use of the mechanics similar to campaign ratings could address these issues, illustrating his point with an example how it could be possibly used regarding religion in fantasy games. Unfortunately, I didn't know how campaign ratings were supposed to work and they weren't fully explained well enough here to enable me to fill in the blanks for other genres of games. All I really gleaned was that it involved a lot of numbers. I do wonder if the article was originally longer and edited for space, given that it's got a very disjointed feel. Overall, it felt like a missed opportunity. Around this time, the rise of the superhero RPGs in general, and more specifically Pete Tamlin's article, generated quite a bit of debate in the White Dwarf's letter page. While the chance to don the cape and fight crime was clearly the answer to some gamers' prayers, Others thought that playing a superhero removed the challenge and threat from role-playing, 
and could be considered, well, a bit childish. The discussion on the Rationale Behaviour article was also quite pointed. A number of letter writers, included Dave Morris no less, thought that while it was well-intentioned, it could actually end up restricting role-playing. While the letters were flying back and forth across the issues, Ian Thompson contributed a short article entitled Alternative Origins in Issue 74. This was an attempt to address the incompatible powers issue in Golden Heroes character generation and managed an impressive feat of including seven, count them, new Golden Heroes tables in one page article. Now, that's what I call old school. Whether you thought this was a problem that needed addressing in the first place was another matter. If I found Pete Tamlin's first Supers article a little disappointing, he came back fighting with two excellent features that had me, as a superhero RPG neophyte, hankering after a spandex costume. The first, How to Save the Universe, in issue 75, was a justification of superheroes RPGs, presumably written in an attempt to answer the critics in the letters page at the time. Pete Tamlin made a very persuasive case. From a player's perspective, he clearly argued that a superhero character with a defined rationale and moral outlook promoted good role-playing. And to counter the argument that the superhero was just too powerful to provide a proper challenge, he drew the obvious comparison with the high-level advanced Dungeons & Dragons characters. Apparently, at that time in the mid-80s, TSR estimated that the average level of characters was 16. Good grief. For the GMs, a familiar modern-day setting made the campaign setup relatively easy, and the vast array of titles from Marvel and DCs, there was plenty of background material to draw from. I wasn't entirely convinced by his argument for the kind of simplified four-colour role-playing, which I think weakened the overall point, but from my perspective at least, Pete Tamlin really made the case for superhero RPGs. There's also an intriguing mention of Simon Burley and Peter Haynes possibly developing science fiction and swords and sorcery supplements for Golden Heroes. I wonder if anything came of them. Pete Tamlin's follow-up article appeared in the very next issue, Caped Crusaders, a guide to running campaigns in Golden Heroes. And it was a cracker, chock full of ideas to spark your imagination. After explaining to the readers of White Dwarf just what a campaign is, uh, thanks Pete, he looked at a number of areas to help bring a campaign alive. He advocated an identifiable contemporary setting to maintain consistency and allow stories to develop over the long term, outlining plots maybe months in advance. Remember when he had time to do that? With this in mind, he recommended GMs to set their campaigns in Britain, as this would make them distinctive from the usual superhero tropes that would be in keeping with the Golden Heroes rules. A British campaign would then raise many intriguing questions. What would Mrs Thatcher make of the caped crusaders? What about the MI5 and the MI6? 
What role would technology play? He posited Sir Clive Sinclair as a British equivalent of Tony Stark. Yes, really. I can imagine the GMs had a lot of fun with that idea. The relationship of the superheroes in the UK tabloid press could also be explored, foreshadowing what was to come with 2000 AD with Zenith. Indeed, he suggested mocking up a newspaper front page, featuring the play characters as a campaign newsletter. There were many threads here that the games master could weave together to make their game more satisfying. More than anything else, Pete Tamling made running or participating in a superhero RPG sound exciting and fun. Am I allowed to use that word? There was even a mention of his forthcoming <clears throat> mysterious adventure pack. Taken as a whole, these Golden Heroes articles in White Dwarf sought to provide a framework for a games master to present a well-considered, consistent believable world to their players by and large they took the genre seriously a number raised the idea of throwing tough moral and ethical choices at their player characters maybe this was influenced by the darker turn that many superhero comics had started to take at the time Given Dirk and Blythe's discussion in the previous episode of the Grog Pod, it's interesting to note that none of these articles encouraged a camp approach to superhero gaming. They played it straight. Were those themes carried through to the scenarios in White Dwarf, though? The first Golden Hero scenario to appear was Strike Back by Marcus L. Rowland in issue 58. Like a number of other adventures I'll look at, it also had the stats for champions, but there's no doubt that it was primarily published for golden heroes. This was a heady mix of genres and tropes as the PCs travelled through time. Hey, it's Marcus L. Rowland. Of course there was time travel. Back to the 19th century Vienna, peppered with both historical figures and literary characters, the Illuminati, missing scientists, the crumbling Transylvanian castle, primed to collapse into rubble at the push of a button in the grand tradition of a universal horror films. It had the distinct flavour of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with a dash of the Terminator thrown in for good measure. Great fun with a fairly open-ended finale. Reading it now, it's perhaps no surprise that Marcus Rowland would go on to produce Forgotten Futures RPG. Issue 67 gave us Peking Duck from Film Masters. The classic backdrop of organised crime, police on the take, cross and double cross, was basically an elaborate setup for reincarnation of White Dwarf's barroom brawl standard slugfest also previously seen in its RuneQuest guise as Rumble at the Tin Inn. Located in a Chinese restaurant, this gave the characters plenty of fixtures and fittings to smash up, and with a roster of entertaining heroes and villains also supplied. I think this would work well as a convention game. Two scenarios from Simon Burley, Mr Golden Heroes himself next. The first, Reunion, in issue 70, was a bit of a curious egg. I didn't quite 
know what to make of it at the time. I still don't know. The follow-on from Crossfire, the adventure in the Golden Heroes Supervisor's book, involved a crashed alien spaceship hurtling to the South American tribe in grass skirts. No room for gritty, brooding, dark nights here then. This was a four-colour, day-glow weirdness. Given that setup, though, the locations, a bank, a museum and a park, were all rather mundane and felt a bit of a letdown. I liked the freeform sandbox structure of the scenario, but couldn't really see how it would make for an entertaining caper for the players. Perhaps it made more sense if you were familiar with the earliest scenario from the box set. Simon Burley's next scenario, however, was an absolute barnstormer. The American Dream, in issue 73, opened with an extended backstory, where a scenery-chewing mega-villain outlined his evil plans to a wronged superhero. At such moments, Ozymandias' quote from Watchmen always springs to my mind. Do you seriously think I'd explain my masterstroke if I remained the slightest chance of you affecting its outcome? I did it 35 minutes ago. The plot for this adventure was much more linear, with the PCs caught between a villain and a superhero, now hell-bent on revenge. But Simon Burley gave some good advice on the various paths that the players could take between the major events. The scenario contained a lot of boxed text, but there was plenty for the GM to get their teeth into. They would be, well, to practice their cheesiest southern accent. Well, I do declare. And not content with doing it once, they got the chance to roleplay the mega-villain explaining these nefarious crimes again. When will they ever learn? Finishing with a confrontation on the deck of an aircraft carrier, this scenario provided a great action-orientated superhero experience. White Dwarf 78 was the first post-Move to Nottingham issue produced and featured the scenario The Pilcomeo Project by Pete Tamlin. Another corker. This was a whirlwind mixture of adrenaline fueled adventure in the Bolivian jungle, featuring fugitive Nazis, a secret base, lost treasure, a rival superhero team, mind control and a more dodgy accent practice for the GM. South American this time. For those of you who never paid attention in geography class, there wasn't even a short primer on Bolivia and its culture. You can't say fairer than that. What marked this adventure out was the novel finale, eschewing the almost standard end boss fight. Okay, it did feature a superhero punch-up, but not at the end. Instead, the team of PCs had to avert an ecological disaster in a race against time to save some villages from being consumed by rivers of lava. Top stuff. So, overall, while the scenarios weren't exactly camp, there was a definite pulp sensibility to them, and I think they were all the better for it. The heroes were good, the villains were bad. No room for ambiguity or soul-searching or moral dilemmas. I think Strike Back, The American Dream 
and the Pilcomeo project all offered exactly what you want from a superhero game. Over the top colourful characters, outrageous plots and plenty of action. But just as suddenly as the features for Golden Heroes appeared in White Dwarf, they disappeared. In the new Nottingham-based magazine, it was barely mentioned again. Why was that? This was a Games Workshop game after all. The Just Dread RPG had just launched and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying was nearing publication. But you thought there was room for plenty of RPGs on Games Workshop's books. Was it down to sales? Or perhaps Golden Heroes was the first casualty under the wheels of the Warhammer juggernaut, driven by Brian Ansell, which just started to rumble through the halls of Games Workshop. A shame, but then good ideas never die. And the game still has a loyal and enthusiastic following, both in its original incarnation and as Squadron UK. Nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. Hey, buddy. Want to go for a ride in my flying car? Nah. How about we go fly around with our jetpacks? Nah. The future's just so boring. Is the future boring you too? Well, maybe you should listen into the Save for Half podcast. The podcast about old school gaming, where we take a look at old gaming books with fresh eyes. You can find us at saveforhalf.com or on iTunes or around the corner. Perhaps we're standing behind you right now. Don't look. Shuggy Dog. Welcome back to the Lassa Gallery here in Manchester, where we're uh, on our second pint. Uh, Happy birthday, Blythe. Let's do this again. Happy birthday, Dad. Happy birthday, Kylie. Yeah. All right, okay. Happy birthday, Kylie. But she couldn't make it. Mm. So, it, now this is a... Don't you like a sports commentator, Dan? We're back in the last ago. Yeah, Like yeah. a snooker commentator. <laughs> <laughs> oh. if, if this doesn't work out, that's what I'll go That's right, that's, that's you. <laughs> so, in the, back in the, back in the uh, uh, last ago, I'm going to tell this story of the worst role-playing session ever. Ooh, not that. That's why we're in the pub. He needs, he's got a couple of pints. He needs a couple of pints to, to go back to this, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's it so bad. It is, uh, I, I do think this is, a, this is the dark secret that every people, when you're introducing people to the hobby, so to mm, role-playing, yeah. I think that everybody's got this nightmare, this haunting, this thing that they carry on their shoulders. I think you're right. The, the difference is you've lived it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do, but as, as in everybody. I, uh, yes. I, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think, that, you know, I, I recently listened to um, uh, a podcast that was encouraging new games yeah. masters, new people to start, and it starts with the premise that it's not that bad. You know, you don't worry because everybody's on your side, everybody's willing you to do well. And it's not that bad. When you when you face with it, yeah. it comes together. Oh yeah. We not always work like that. Uh, no. I think it's fair to say sometimes people are not on your side. Yeah. You can be sad. <laughs> it's a very nice a very nice view of the world that, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone oh, yeah. round the table's on your side. They're not. They're not on your side. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. No. And I, I do think, you know, in the next uh, few weeks we're going to um, UK Games Expo, we'll be running some games. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great, you know, and I feel okay about doing it. But 
in my darkest moments. <laughs> just going to relive the, the bad game. The bad game. We've all yeah. had bad games. I think everyone's had bad games, haven't they? Yeah. And, and I think, I think in fairness, if you sp- I'm not saying they'll all be as bad as yours, but I think if you speak to most people who run games, and maybe even players, they've, we, they've all had a few bad games, and they, they've all had probably one game that's the worst of all the bad games. You know, we we'll probably all think of one, but yeah, is is a really bad game that kind of rattles you a bit. Yeah. So this, this is about a Golden Heroes game that I've run. Yeah. This is a story. I've not told before, so we need to set some context. It's, really a, it's a long rambling story, but let's face it, if you don't like long rambling stories, you're listening to the wrong podcast, aren't you? Really? Well, you, you are, and if, if you've been coming back for more of it, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. it's, a whole, it's all based on yeah. long rambling stories. <laughs> so go now, go, go now, forget go. it, switch off now. <laughs> this, uh, this brings back um, two themes that come from uh, this podcast. First one, is our insatiable desire to find other people yes. to play with. Yes, absolutely. And the other one is, uh, this involves Golden Heroes, but I don't think it's Golden Heroes' fault because... No, I don't think it is. No, I think that we need to say that up front, that this is not, it's not Golden Heroes' be- fault. Because any good game can be destroyed by a bunch of knobheads. Yes, it can. And, as we, may, as we will say, was... <laughs> What was in this case? <laughs> so, you know, and that's clouded my judgment. When I when I started when I started reading that when I started reading it, Golden mm. Heroes again, it brought back the night. Yeah, I, I, I said. I mean, I, I think we will talk about this, but no, it wasn't. It's not the game's fault at all. No. I, I think you could have you could have picked lots of games. I th- uh, well, well, and we would have had the same experience. Well, we'll come back. We'll come back and we'll, yeah. we'll try and yeah. dissect it. So I better tell the story. So this is uh, 1985, summer of 1985. I remember it very vividly. Yes. Um, it was a point where we were back to more or less us two playing. There were yeah. three players three in and yeah. Eddie because when Eddie came along, he yeah. brought a bunch of other people who uh, we played with for a period of time. Uh, but by 1985, we were down to the three, three of us. Of us again, yeah. And we, we wanted to play with more people. It's, it's better playing with more people, and we couldn't find them. No. I mean, now we've rolled 20, beating them off with a stick. Yeah. But practically. Back in, back in those days. Although a virtual stick. No. Virtual stick. Yeah. No. But in those, in those sometimes days, it's a bit it's glitchy. Some of the times they're a bit glitchy, and you can't. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so back, back then, yeah. we were thinking. And then one day we went into the uh, local toy shop, Boydell's, we've mentioned it before, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a postcard saying that there was a games group and it had the details on there. And we looked at it and thought, yes, it's on a Sunday night, yeah. we'll find it, we'll go and we'll go and play. Did it have a phone number? It had a phone number on it, it had an address on it, yeah. and when Eddie saw the address, <laughs> key elements. Key element to finding them. It has their names, address, and telephone number, none of which we wrote down. We didn't write any of it that down. No, we thought we'd remember it. We remember it, which we didn't. Uh, no, so why didn't we write it down? <laughs> we didn't write we'll it just down. remember that yeah. and immediately forgot it. Yeah. But Eddie, this is a vital bit. Eddie looked at it and he said, "I know where he that did, is. Yeah, I did. know where that is. is." So come the day, and it's a very, I remember this very vividly. Because at the time, mm. Simon was round at our house and he was playing Jetpack on uh, the ZX Spectrum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was playing on his own. Now, he had a VIC-20. 
He had a VIC-20, which he professed to be far superior to our ZX Spectrum. But he was always... Like a, he had like a grammar school computer, didn't he? Yeah, he did. We had a comprehensive school computer. <laughs> but funnily enough, he was always on our computers <laughs> yeah. because the VIC-20 was... Couldn't do anything. Couldn't, couldn't do, do anything. anything. It just looked better, but he didn't do anything. But I remember this because he was, he was messing about on the, uh, on, on the Spectrum play, playing yeah. uh, Chucky Egg or whatever. And I was reading, I was reading, while he was there, I was reading the last few pages of Leoness uh, by Jack Vance and thinking that this is the greatest book that has ever been written. And that's why I remember it. I remember this really vividly. And trying to work out ways in which I could get Simon out of the way without telling him that we were going to go playing role-playing that night. Yes. Because they wanted him to come. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he didn't want him to come. So, so uh, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to find it. So he went, and then we went in search of this house that we didn't know the, the address. We didn't know, we, we, we thought they were called Tony James. We, we thought he called Tony, Tony James because it, because yeah. Eddie convinced us that that was a Catholic thing, that you had a first name and second Catholic name. Catholic thing? Yeah, that you had two names, because he had uh, cousins that were had two names. Yeah. Is yeah, it, is John it, Thomas and all this. It's a Catholic thing, is it? Is it? But he, he anyway, convinced, he convinced us. He convinced us that that was fine. He was called Tony, Tony James, James. Yeah, yeah. And he knew where it I was. Think, I think what it was, the handwriting was bad. And you could read James. Couldn't quite read the other name. So we, we concluded it was Tony. Yeah. So, yeah. We just thought Tony James. So we went looking for it, and what Eddie didn't tell us is, although he knew where the vicinity of this place was, yeah. he only knew it within uh, in half a mile radius. Yeah. So we were in a place, and it was pouring down. Yeah, it was in summer, and um, it was one of those nights where it was the sky was white. It was a bit chilly, a bit damp. Damp. It was a typical summer's evening, but yeah. <laughs> to be honest, and we were drenched, weren't we? Yeah. We were wandering around. And we couldn't find it. We could not find this place. We were walking around the streets. Because it was so wet at that point, Eddie did what he always does and said, I'm going. I've had enough. I'm going. Yeah. Yes. Whereas we, the sensible thing would have been for us to say, we'll go with you. It was you. Like, almost like live action role playing, wasn't it? <laughs> we, one of our role playing games, Eddie's character would assist he knew where things were wouldn't we'd get lost and he'd disappear yeah leaving us to face the brew on our own it's just like live it's not a live action role playing so then we got to the uh, we, we got to the street and we thought right this the, it's round here somewhere it's round here somewhere we'll yeah. ask somebody just knock we'll ask them if they know yeah. Tony James yes yeah yeah so we knocked on the door yeah and an old lady came after a while and said, Hello. I got her out of a chair. Got her out chair. chair. Crawl to the door. I said, We're looking, we want, we're looking. Th- imagine this, right? Ima- I, lo- I don't have to imagine it. <laughs> you were there. I was there. I was there. I'm laughing because I know what's coming. <laughs> we, we turned to this lady who didn't know us. We were a young 17 year old lad who knocked on the door and we said, Sorry to disturb you. We're looking for Tony James. And he plays games. Do you know him? And she looked <laughs> puzzled. And she turned around to us and she said, Oh, I don't know Tony, but Tom, across the road, he takes in boys, young boys, for drama. 
and we just went, it's him! That'll do, that'll do. Sounds about right. Yeah, we'll get him. Yeah. That's it. Young boys for drama, that's it. That's that's where we're going. (laughs) We're going. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) So we we thanked her, and we we knocked on the door, (laughs) and it was answered by a bearded man with a wonky eye. Bearded man with a wonky eye. Did you have a glass eye? I think it was a glass eye. We never got to the bottom of that. (laughs) But there you go. And we said, are you Tony James? And he looks at us blankly with his one eye. With his good eye. <laughs> blankly with his other eye, but he was always blank with the other eye. So he said, he said to him, he said to him we're looking, and he said, yeah, this is it. you come to the right place. Come on in. Take your clothes off. Take, what? <laughs> what he meant was, well, he said, all right, can we have a game of role playing first? <laughs> with that desperate, we have a game of role playing? Yeah, fine. So yeah. you didn't take your course off, didn't yes, you? Yes, because the coat was... They were, were drenched. And, they were, they were, and I remember, you see, this is, a, this is a mark about working class nature. He said, now, take, take your coats off, and you know where you have to put your coats, don't, don't you? And we both looked blankly at him <laughs> and thought, what does he mean? I don't know, on the radiator, on the chair, and he, he looked at us, he went, in the, in the dryer. And we thought, I just want to go to the dryer. Yeah, what's a dryer? What's what, a dryer? What, what alchemy is this? Good Lord, yeah. magic. <laughs> they, had, they, had a, they had a tumble dryer, didn't he they? He did, yeah, he did, yeah. I only got a tumble dryer the other week. <laughs> that, that was a mark of a working class nature. Was, we, looked, yeah. we looked blank as a long pause where we thought, where, where does he, where does he want to put our coats? Yeah. So it was the obvious answer. Yeah, because this, this was a rarefied world, wasn't it, that we were entering into that we'd never experienced mm. before. So when we got to know them, so... There was a group, a group of them, and they yes. were older, older. Uh, was they older? They're probably about, I don't know, twenty-eight. No, no, I think thirties, thirties, forties, I think. Yeah, yeah, possibly, yeah. yeah. Um, and we got to know them, and they were, you know, the, the, the mark of the people they were. They were drinking jasmine tea. It wasn't tetleys or anything like drinking that. Drinking jasmine tea, black, black coffee. You'd have, they actually would make you a coffee. And there was no mention of sugar or milk. Yeah, no. Which again, our working class nature is that cut sugar and milk, essential yeah. to a cup of coffee. Yeah, and yeah. black coffee. We never said anything. No. Seemed rude. So there's a group. There was a group of uh, a group of them, and there's no Tony there, but there was Tom, and there was Bernard, the yes. man with the beard yeah. and the wonky eye, yeah. and um, a small uh, a group of others of uh, people who would come and go, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, essentially, the group was made up of them, and Pie face. Now, <laughs> pie face isn't. We're using that name because, yeah, he looked like the Beano character. Yeah. Pie face. For Protect the guilty. Protect the guilty. Mm. But pie face. He was a kind of a, a thorn in our side, wasn't he? Because he was a smart ass. He was a smart. He ass. was a classic RPG smart ass. Yeah. They're a type, aren't they? But he was one of those, wasn't he? Yeah. He was a bit older than us. He was in, he was in his twenties, wasn't he? Yeah. We were like, what, were we 15? We're 17. We're 17. 17, 17 yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, yeah. so in 1985, this, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 17. And, uh, but you see, remember, this at this point in role playing, I was running the um, uh, playing bag mail game, been to a couple of conventions. Mm. In my eyes, I was God. Yeah, that's yeah, true. We, we, th- that was the thing, wasn't it? That we existed in a bit of a bubble because we yeah. didn't know anybody else who played it. Yeah, we thought we were. We thought, well, given that we run, do a podcast, I suppose we still think. Yeah, we are God. Yeah. We know it all. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to say God. <laughs> you said God. I, just for the record, I didn't say, I don't think I'm God. Yeah. He does. I don't. <laughs> but but I, 
it's that thing that we thought we thought we knew a lot about it. We've been yeah, playing yeah. for we've been playing for a long time. We've been playing two or three times a week for years. And yeah. We played RuneQuest, Traveller, D and D. We played all the stuff. We subscribed to White Dwarf. We say we've been to conventions. We thought we knew everything and we everything knew, about I, it. And and we went there. We went there. And the, the reason why I say it, I, I I say God out of arrogance because that's what <laughs> really that, that, really yeah <laughs> oh, no, no really honest oh, yeah, okay. uh, out of arrogance <laughs> because you know we were about to uh, launch a fanzine at that point and, yeah, uh, yeah. play by mail and all play that. by yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. honestly yeah. we thought that we knew it all and it quickly came apparent that we didn't well we, well we, it's not we, so much that we didn't. I think what became apparent was they played it differently. Very differently. They played it very differently. I don't think it was a case of we, we left there thinking we've been doing it wrong. But it, it, we, we thought we were finding people who would join us, or we would join them, and we would carry on merrily doing what we did. But we found that they played it very, very differently. They had a very different approach. And it also had a slightly more a narrower view of what kind of role-playing games they were into we, we yeah, were into yeah. role-playing games and we'd play any role-playing game wouldn't we? yeah yeah but they they didn't really they were into a particular kind of game yeah and they were particular so before they uh, so we joined them for a few weeks it was like six or seven maybe eight weeks and during yeah. that time and we've relayed it before we were playing the bureaucratic planet of uh, travel yeah, that's right. and they played it for three hours for uh, six mm. to eight weeks yeah. doing that planet I needed that black coffee to keep me awake I know is that boring well that, that, that was part of the thing wasn't it so they, they Tom was uh, he smoked a pipe throughout it it was an old old thing and, and before 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 he did this on a Sunday night he was a reserve, wasn't he? He was, he a, was yeah. He was a naval yeah. reserve. Yeah. So he was doing uh, manoeuvres on Mossbank Park um, before he came and joined. Well, he's doing manoeuvres planning, because this is the 80s, he's planning for World War Three. Yeah. And to be honest, he took one look at him and thought, we've lost. <laughs> we've lost already. The Russians have won. If we're relying on people like him, we yeah, we're screwed. We're screwed, yeah. We're absolutely screwed. Bernard was a part-time actor, wasn't he? And... Um, <laughs> Pieface. I don't like just part time, one way <laughs> but, or another. Um, <laughs> whereas, um, whereas uh, Pieface, he was a perpetual student who fancied himself as a military person because every time we saw him, he wore a jumper with epaulets. On. Yeah, they, they, there was a lot of epaulets in that house. It was, wasn't there? Yeah. there was a lot of them. Yeah, I remember Tom turning up one one day. He'd been on these manoeuvres and he got back a bit late, didn't he? He had his naval naval full jumper gear, on. Yeah, full gear. Naval on. jumper on with with golden. You know, golden yellow epaulets and yeah, things yeah. on. I don't know what rank he was, but probably no rank at all. I don't know, <laughs> but it looked like yeah. he was a man. It looked official. It looked, it looked official. official. More official than what we were wearing. Yeah, you know, really in t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> That's not allowed in the army. He was wearing military military uniform. Yeah. So they were running it, and all the time I was thinking, Oh God, that, that impatience shoot my way out of this it's traveller I want to shoot my way out of it but that belief that I'm going to run a game for these people and show them I'll show them I'll show them <laughs> show them how to do this <laughs> oh Icarus do not fly too close to the sun for your waxy wings will melt but yeah I thought I will show them a good time <laughs> I will show them yes. oh, yeah. what is possible 
So when it came to a convenient break, I said, let me run a game. Mm. I'll, I'll run a game for you. And at that time, we had Golden Heroes. I thought, I'll do that one. Because yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, like I normally do, I'll plan it, schedule a game, and it'll force me to learn the game. Yeah, to do something And do, and do yeah, something yeah. with it. So on the first night, and this was, this was my mistake, wasn't it? The first night... But I think going back, going yeah, back got, to what got, you said got, earlier, I think what, what you were thinking was that no one wants you to fail. So it'd be okay to run Golden Heroes. Yeah, we're all right. Because right, nobody... Yeah. We, we've, never, we've never wanted a game. We've always played these games wanting it to succeed yeah, and yeah. not be difficult. But that's what you were thinking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think it's not really a spoiler to say you were wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. So my first mistake was when I came to uh, read uh, Golden Heroes, I struggled to understand how to play it. Mm. I, I looked at it and I just thought, beyond the character creation... I didn't understand because there's so many different resolution things. It's so different from basic role playing. Well, as so we, different yeah, yeah, from yeah. Uh, uh, other games. I just didn't know how to do it properly. Yeah. So I was a bit anxious about that. And also, uh, we're playing the Legacy of Eagles, and I wasn't quite sure on that. So the first week, I went and I apologised. I said, "I'm sorry. I've." Got to a point where I can't, I, you know, I can't, I can't present it tonight. Um, we could create some characters, or we can do that next time. That's part of the fun, part of the game, uh, you know. But I, I, I'm afraid I'm not at a point where I can deliver it. That's my first mistake because Pie Face was inconsolable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's shown weakness, haven't you? Though? I'd shown weakness, intellectual weakness. These man's a buffoon. So he was kind of rolling his eyes, wasn't he? Yeah, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm glad I didn't invite my uh, uh, beautiful girlfriend. Oh, he had a girlfriend, didn't he? Yeah, Pauline. Yeah, she so nice. like, so like Kate Bush. She did, didn't she? He seemed, to be, it seemed wrong. Yeah, my face and Kate Bush. She didn't bring uh, Kate Bush. No. I'm glad Kate Bush didn't come tonight because that would have made it all made it far, far worse. Wouldn't far it? worse, yeah. yeah. So I let them down. There was no session that night. Yeah. And we ended up rolling some Twilight 2000 characters. That's right, yeah. 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 And that, that, was, that was the thing, wasn't it? They were into role play. They played Traveller, but they liked the kind of militaristic yeah. dimension of Traveller. And the next game they were going to play was Twilight 2000, which was a kind of post-apocalyptic game, wasn't it? Where you yeah. were, your characters tended to be drawn from military backgrounds. So it was very much that thing of their... What they were into in role-playing was... Slightly science fictiony, militaristic yeah, games. Simulationist, yeah, highly simulationist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were what very, they, liked. they were very turned on by um, some of the mechanics around detailed um, wounds and yeah. damage that particular yeah, yeah. weapons would yeah. do. That was that was their thing, and that was the, the one of the key lessons, wasn't it? That we were beginning to learn that you can find people who like role playing games, but sometimes. They just like a particular type of role-playing game. So to give an example for Twilight 2000, I wanted to create a character that was essentially fish from Marillion, wasn't well, it? Well, we wore Marillion t-shirts. Like yeah. That's, that was a... That was a a pathicist who wore <laughs> a, a, a Scottish, yeah, yeah. wore a white feather and was anti-militaristic. Mm. And uh, wouldn't have it. 
Well, a pie face would go, oh, well, I think you'll find that he was uh, brought up in the uh, Green Party in, uh, in Germany and then turned his back on that. Well, no, 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 no. No, no he, he's my character. My character. My character. You don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, that was the kind of thing, wasn't it? Yes. That, that, yeah. That was taking place. So the next week came and I was ready. You know, I'd be, I had my fingers burnt. I made sure I was ready, ready for it. I, they, they went from the point of view. I, I put it to you that they put the point of view that this must fail. Yes. Well, there was one guy there called Jason. Jason was our age. Yeah. And he, he was okay, wasn't he? He's yeah. a bit more like us. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. But yeah, the rest of them, there was a definite sense of. And, and it hostility came, to it. Yeah. So and we set it out and. Um, we used the uh, I, I used the counters. I used the uh, floor plans and uh, got them into spit by generating the characters at the table, and that took some time because they were querying um, the each of the uh, superpowers and where they would come from, and the rationalisation took a long time, and uh, they were kind of saying, it, it, "I think the arms folded." Uh, nature <laughs> of everybody around the yeah, table. Yeah, the body language. The body language showed me that they didn't want to participate. I think they were really people who'd never had any fun in their whole life. Yeah. When confronted with fun, didn't want to engage with it. No. And so <laughs> they were questioning the whole character creation system, the fact that it was random, and yeah. when they were asked to rationalise the superpowers, they were sighing all the way through it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, is it, are we going to are we going to start playing that kind of thing? Mm. So we got playing, and it, it started off with a big fight yeah. to get people get people going. But either my lack of grasp on the uh, framing thing, or their lack of wanting to take part in it, meant that it was a real struggle from the word go, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, he's, it's that thing, isn't it, with a, with any game? But all right, it was a new game to you, but they they, they just weren't particularly supportive. Like no. I say, I think they had it in their heads that they didn't they weren't into superheroes, they weren't into role playing games. They didn't fit their kind of remit of what they liked, no. and they were they just weren't into it. No, no. That uh, didn't stop you, did it? I, I barrelled on. You barrelled on. <laughs> you know, we've said when I had GMI tests before, you know, yeah. this thing, yeah, yeah. this ability of barrelling on. I'm perhaps overcompensating and doing all the work. And that's a, that's a, that's a mistake as well, isn't it, when faced with these situations. Yeah. When you, you, you realise you're the only person talking and you've been the only person talking for some time. Yeah. And the players haven't said anything. There's that, that realisation that, well, it's just you talking. And when when I said, what, so what are you going to do? Everybody just looked at this character sheet as if they were waiting for something yeah. to emerge and something to tell them. And I I remember feeling old as a player because obviously as a player I was I was up for playing it and the other guy Jason he was yeah, yeah. he was up for playing it as well, but we we felt kind of stifled by them being so strangely hostile to it. Hostile and uh, Trappist, you know, that they didn't want to yeah, speak, yeah. and yeah. the only questions they had were questioning the mechanics or the authenticity or 
why they were there. Yeah, and I think I think as a play, from a player's perspective, so from a game master's perspective, I think your experience as that game unfolded was you could see all your experience of games mastering, all the things you thought were right, were suddenly being thrown into question, and it was all kind of collapsing around your ears. Yeah. But I think for me as a player that was true as well because I wanted my character to do things and wanted to say things, but because of their attitude, I thought. Oh no! Well, maybe I better not. I better not do those things because it means me stepping out there in front of these older people who seemed more experienced, yeah, and slightly more sophisticated than us. So I didn't feel confident as a player, you know. So yeah. it wasn't just it wasn't just you as a games master. It's yeah. worse for you as a games master, far worse for you. But even as a player, it was intimidating. Because you thought, I, I, I want, I've got these superpowers. I want to do stuff, but they're not, they're not buying into it. So, so that that would be bad enough. Yeah. But I got to a point, and this is this is why, this is why it was the worst ever. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I got to a point and just said, this isn't working, is it? Let's stop, and we'll come back to it. Some other time. Yeah. Okay. But words never before us insulted during a game. No. Yeah. But the killing blow as I collected <laughs> my floor plans in silence <laughs> and put them into the box, Pieface said, Well, that was another wasted game session. And so Ooh. I walked home feeling destroyed and I don't think it was a fatal wound well obviously not but, no, but that time I I don't think we played for some time afterwards I think at that yeah. point it, no, it, it knocked the stuffing out of you and I, to some extent me but not as much me but but then there was so the thing is there was so few there were only three of us playing so all it took is the stuffing to be knocked out of one of us and it would kind of fall apart then wouldn't it yeah yeah you know once you didn't want to really run things for a while or play things for a while, then that left me and Eddie kind of a bit of a loose end. So it, yeah. it sort of fell apart anyway, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. But, but I think it was a combination thing. So with Golden Heroes, it wasn't a game system I was familiar with. Yeah. And there isn't a universal resolution thing. So I was floundering. I remember that feeling of floundering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, as we said last time, uh, the uh, superhero and comic setting, it's not something I was overly familiar with yeah. so I didn't have anything to fall back on yeah. you know if you said right um, if things were floundering you'd throw a tack of a bruise or something like yeah, that yeah. something I felt uh, it, it could, could keep it rescue it yeah. and you know the players were a bunch of arseholes <laughs> I think if, if those points are in order of importance I think you've got them the wrong way around <laughs> I do because I think if, if someone comes to you, if you're an experienced role-playing group and someone says, right, I've got a game, we've not played it before, I'm going to run it for you, it's fair to be sort of sympathetic yeah. you know, to the game master and think, well, I've not run it before, so you know, yeah. cut them a bit of slack. Let's be honest, even if you have run it before, you still cut a games master slack. Yeah. We've, all, we've all done that, we're running a game and we've put a foot wrong and someone's going, well, hang on, do we roll for initiative at this stage? Oh, yeah, of course you do, yeah, of course you do. Yeah, sorry, yeah. my mistake. It's not a big deal, is it? You know, yeah. as a, a games master. 
you know, I mean, I was in the, I was in the game a while ago where someone said I made I made a mistake and someone said, oh, do you want us to run the game for you? You know, I leapt over the table and punched them. But it's kind of unsympathetic view, isn't it? Because yeah. when you're running a game, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Particularly if there's a lot of players. Yeah. And sometimes you might make a mistake as a games master, but that's that's the way it goes. Just yeah. be, you know, just be kind of open to the idea. And yeah. Work with it. You know, you don't have to be so unpleasant about it. But it, it, it's come back to that thing, isn't it? That it was an eye opener for us because we'd we'd gone in search of players, thinking that all players and all role playing people were like us and wanted to do what we wanted to do. And we discovered it was a very hard lesson to discover that that's not the case. No, you know, it's the fun bomb thing, isn't it? Yeah. If you if you if you're having fun, you're doing it right. They were having fun before we turned up. We yeah. were having fun before we found them. But we weren't doing the same thing. No. We were doing very different things. Yeah. And once you mix the two, it don't work. Yeah. It don't work. It's not the case that you're going to find people who do the same thing that you do. No. So having fun, don't necessarily mean you're doing it right. Because <laughs> you could be doing it very different from other people who are having fun. As a, as a coda to this uh, story, uh, some years later, I went to uh, Preston Science Fiction Club and um, there was a presentation there from Leo Baxendale who was famous for a couple of reasons. One reason is that he was a comic book artist who managed to um, get some recognition for the characters that he created for DC Thompson in uh, Dundee. And the second thing was that he invented the Bass Street Kids and worked at the Beano. And the Beano was, of course, where Dennis... The Menace and <laughs> Nasher and Pieface. Pie yes. And who should be in the crowd on that evening but Pieface himself? I was All the irony. Irony. I never went back to the game group, but I saw him that night. He blanked me, but I blanked him back. <laughs> yes. The blank off. And he was still wearing his bloody jumper with an epaulet. Same on. jumper with epaulet. Yeah, Get yourself yeah. a new jumper. <laughs> Years have gone by. Good God. What's this thing with epaulets? What does that prove? <laughs> epaulets on a jumper. Really? No. And with that bombshell. Till next time. See Goodbye. you later. There isn't another bit. It still hurts 33 years later. I shudder when I think of it. But it also makes me pause. I'm on the other side of the table now. I'm an older gamer. Would I be like them when faced with an arrogant youth who was insisting I play a game that I didn't really want to play in a way that they thought that I should be playing it? I think there's a lesson for all of us gamers to be tolerant, inclusive and prepared to engage in something different than we used to. Thanks to Simon Burley who is an exemplar of inclusiveness at the gaming table. I'm extremely grateful for him taking the time to give the interview, especially since it wasn't really a convenient time for him to do it at the moment. So thanks, Simon. His current project is Manifold, which is in development. It's a generic system that takes some of the elements of the Code series of games, but with some new innovations. It's possible to have multiple settings, such as horror, supers, science fiction and fantasy and move characters between genre. There's also options for tactical and narrative combat, depending on your preference. 
Manifold is represented significantly at UK Games Expo in 2018. And we'll be there this year, mainly playing games as we've overscheduled ourselves, but we'll be milling around the trade hall on Friday and the bar on Saturday night, and probably complaining about the price of beer. £5 a pint? Are you mad? If you spot us, then come over and say hello. We'll not know what we're doing. We're about to launch tickets for Grogmeet 2018, and we've started work on the third Grogzine. If you want to take part or have any ideas for the next issue, then please get in touch. And these side projects are made possible thanks to the generous contributions from our patrons. And the best way to keep up to date with games and these other side projects is to participate in the Patreon campaign. In April 2018, we welcome one new member, Tony Boland, who pledged £5 a month, and he gets a superpower. He's the oldest web-slinger in town. Thanks, Tony. Next time, we continue our spy sequence. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, while night's black agents to their praise do rouse. Happy birthday, Kylie. Adios, amigos. They call me the wild rose But my name was Eliza Day Why they call me that I do not know For my name was Eliza Day From the first day I saw her I knew she was the one She stared in my eyes and smiled For her lips were the color of the roses That grew down the river all bloody and wild When he knocked on my door and entered the room My trembling subsided in his sure embrace He would be my first man and with a careful hand Wiped out the tears that ran down my face They call me the wild rose But my name was Eliza Day Why they call me that I do not know For my name was Eliza Day